1: Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face,
2: but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program.
3: Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, February 26, 2021. I'm Jason Breifel from Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Today, we are discussing diversity and inclusion in the national security workforce. As our government strives to look more like the people it serves, it is critical that all sectors of the government become more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. National security is one of those areas that has historically lagged behind in welcoming diverse voices to the table, particularly the leadership table. Today, our panel of changemakers and leaders in this space will be discussing ongoing opportunities to increase diversity and national security. First let me welcome Maggie Feldman-Pilch, Maggie is the CEO and founder of the National Security Girl Squad. Welcome, Maggie.
4: Thanks. It's actually NatSec Girl Squad, and I know it sounds funny to say, but since it's tattooed on my rib cage, I have to tell you.
3: (laughs) I won't get it wrong again. Thank you so much for that, NatSec Girl Squad, awesome. Next we have Bumi Akanusotu. Bumi is an advisory board member with the Diversity and National Security Network. Bumi also hosts a podcast on amplifying the voices of people in color in the national security workspace called What in the World? We'll dive more into that with Bumi into the program. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, Jason. It's good to be here.
3: Finally, we have Miriam Safi. Miriam is a senior fellow at the Truman Center for National Policy. Welcome, Miriam, and thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you for having me. So just to give our listeners a quick outline of our chat today, in our first segment, we're going to hear a little bit more about our guests, uh, their organizations, and the current state of play in the national security workforce. And we're going to dive into the barriers to equal opportunity and efforts that are being championed by our guests and within the government and the community to bridge these gaps. And then we'll wrap up our discussion with the value and the pathways for creating a sustainable culture for inclusivity in national security workforce. Before we dive into the meat of our conversation, I want to remind our listeners that FedTalk is brought to you by the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. The program is sponsored by the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, insured by John Hancock Life, and a health insurance company under a group long-term care insurance policy administered by long-term care partners doing business as Headpoint. To learn more, visit them at ltcfeds.com today. Uh, well, again, Maggie, Boomy, Miriam, thank you so much for being here with us. And I want to start off the show um, both first to, to let you each just tell us a little bit more about your organizations and then I want to make sure that we're setting the ground with, with knowing what are we talking about? What is the national security workforce um, that we will be diving into today? Um, first, let's start with um, Boomi. Can you please tell us about the Diversity in National Security Network?
2: Sure. Happy to. So um, in 2018, um, Asha Castleberry, Laura Coupe, and Camille Stewart uh, recognized an important need or space um, that was uh uh contentious at the time given our administration but regardless recognized that we knew um that they knew a lot of people in foreign policy national security who weren't getting opportunities um who weren't um being taken seriously on and on and on so um as a way to address that uh dinson was created um and it is a coalition of foreign policy and security experts who not only care about diversity but they know their stuff right um, and they not only know their stuff but they've walked the walk they've been all over the world, they've got all the degrees um, um, they're well-connected individuals and maybe on their own you know it's it's hard but as a collective right as a coalition they can they can do so much more. So Dinson is that space filler? Um, for experts of color, um, in terms of amplifying their expertise, so not just saying here here's a black person, <laughs> it's like <laughs> here is a Russian speaker who's lived in the Ukraine, who writes about Russia issues, and by the way, this person is black, right? So there's no excuse to say we can't find these individuals. So that's um, Dinson in a nutshell, and the lists that we put out are all public, so. Um, we started amplifying those voices by acknowledging um, the top Latinas, or not top, I would say, Latinas you should know, or African Americans you should know, um, Asian Americans you should know, so on and so forth. Again, as a way to um, help people find the talent that they said they can't find.
3: Thank you so much, Bumi. Uh, The power of networks is is huge, and I want to follow your introduction of the Diversity National Security Network. Uh, Maggie, please tell us about the NatSec Girl Squad.
4: Yeah, and I also just want to commend you all for finding three non-white women to have this conversation, right? I think that's, uh, it's it, it's not easy, supposedly. That, I, I don't know that all any of us would say that it was not easy, but we we're told that it's not easy. So kudos to you guys. Great job. Um, and uh, NatSec Girl Squad is um, a for-profit entity. And I I always say that first um, for a couple of reasons because I think it really kind of underscores what our mission and our focus is and how we um, fit really well with many of the other organizations we're going to be talking about today, Jensen being one of them um, and Truman as well. So Natsa Girl Squad is, I'm guessing you could tell from the name, uh, is focused on national security and defense. So for us, like The tent is wide, it is large, all are welcome, as long as you are committed to our code of conduct and our idea of competent diversity, which I'll talk about in just a second. Um, But really recognizing that the needs of people, what we call non-PMS, so non-pale, male, and stale, uh, people in national security and defense are a little bit different than those in the broader foreign policy space. Um, So we... I, I sometimes joke that we're sort of like this iceberg, right? Because I have a social media presence, but maybe 20% of our community uses social media. And by uses social media, I mean like they're even just an egg on Twitter, right? Like leaflets are really big in the national, in, the, in that secular squad. Um, so we're really focused on women in the military, people in the military. So uh, IC, defense, policy, um, and way outside of the political space. Um, And there are times where that can be a challenge because it's not just that we're nonpartisan. We are non-political We're really looking at uh, civil service and and again those other groups I mentioned Um, and that can be hard Some days are harder than others (laughs) But we do our best and and again, as I mentioned, we're a for-profit entity Uh, There are many reasons for that and that is a whole other podcast, but I would summarize by saying um, it really comes down to that for us Uh, many of the people in our community, as I said, don't have a public presence. And so for them to be part of a membership organization that doesn't report out who all of their donors are, right, which is really bad OPSEC, we had to make some choices. And that was one of the choices we made. Um, The last thing I'll say is I alluded to this idea of competent diversity. And that's a real intentional choice on ours. Um, And that competence is something that gets thrown around uh, in people's faces when they want to keep you out of the room And so if we just call it like we see it and make people uncomfortable and really have to say like Do you actually think we're non-competent or do we just not look like you think we should? Um, It makes the conversation more fun
3: Thank you so much Maggie for that great introduction and I look forward to digging into that phrase competent diversity a bit more in our conversation Uh, Miriam last but not least Uh, Please tell me about your role as a visiting senior fellow with the Truman Center for National Policy.
0: Thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. So I very recently joined the Truman Center for National Policy. I've been on leave from the State Department for now close to two years, and I'm um, just about to reenter. But I was brought in to lead a task force on reforming the State Department um, and really kind of from the inside out, like getting into the guts of the institution. And it was a 30-person task force, largely mid-career officers, um, both civil service and foreign service. We wanted to make sure it was the entire institution and, and across as you know, the diversity in terms of race, gender, sexual orientation, people with disabilities, like really getting into like what does it mean to have an equitable and a just State Department? Um, because you know, as as you know, you know the State Department, um, the broader interagency, uh, it's a the same dynamics that are playing in our own country. country. Are also at play within within this institution. They're connected. So you know we frame the report um, not just looking at the last four years, but quite honestly, our whole country. And we had a reckoning on race over the summer, looking at four hundred years of systemic racism. And so the issues that we're discussing in the report, some of the root causes for attrition, which I'm sure we'll get into later in the podcast. Um, you know what are what are they? You know, and, and it's connected to this legacy of exclusion of certain groups of women, of people of color, people of. Uh, so we really tried to, um, you know, create a platform to give the context that's I think necessary. And then also ideas for a path forward. I, again, there's no magic bullet solution. Um, so we advocate, for example, there was an announcement recently of a, you know, creating a position for a chief diversity and inclusion officer, which is fantastic. And this person would report directly to the secretary. But we say in the report, you know, it's not just about creating a position, it's making sure that that individual and in that office is empowered and is resourced and is not set up for failure because we want to make sure that, you know, and and it's right now I think we have this historic alignment, we're quite lucky, we have a secretary and a president and an administration that has just made diversity a top line, uh, you know, inclusion from, and framed as a national security issue, it's an asset, right? It's not just the right thing to do; it's the smart thing to do. So, um, I think we're we're lucky and we're fortunate in this moment in time. Um, I think we also, because of the pandemic and because of this reckoning on race and this convergence, uh, people are really understanding that equity matters. You know, we have this com- on, on pandemic response. The, the level I haven't seen so much discussion on equi- equitable vaccine distribution, for example. How are under-resourced communities? you know, how can we look at some of the, the issues around trust, you know, with communities of color who historically have, there, there has been an erosion of trust when it comes to public health, for example. So I think this is a, this is an incredible, I, I would say once in a generation moment. And so now the, the report, what we're hoping to do is to really catalyze a conversation so that it's, well, we're launching on March 3rd. 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's open to the public. Uh, I, we have over 400 people, maybe 500 people now registered just in the last couple of days. So there's clearly a hunger for this topic. Uh, and we're hoping, again, to reach out to the broader, um, you know, we had about 60 reviewers in the, in the just within the report from academia, from across the interagency, from the tech sector. We also look at engaging all of America. So that includes constituents like you know cities, states, mayors, governors, um, innovation hubs, not just Silicon Valley, but looking at Detroit and Pittsburgh and Austin and sort of really building a conversation so that it's inclusive, um, both in terms of demographics, but also geography.
3: Thank you so much, Miriam. So much to unpack there. We will make sure that we come back to your event on March 3rd so that everyone can get the details there. We have to stop to take our first break, and then we'll come back to this important discussion. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're diving back into our conversation about diversity in the national security workforce. And I want to make sure that we talk about what we mean when we say that. Um, is this just the State Department? Is this just DOD? You know, what about Intel? Who are we missing? Um, is, uh, Maggie, do you want to take this one on?
4: Sure, and you know, obviously to my two friends that are doing this with me, feel free to jump in. Uh, we are collaborative conversators, I would say. Um, you, yes, it is the State Department. Yes, it is the Department of Defense. Yes, it is in the intelligence community and all I guess we have 18 components there now. It is also federal law enforcement. Um, I would most certainly include FBI. We have a strong presence at FBI. We have lots of members from FBI. We can talk about FBI, that is a whole other thing. Um, And, you know, during the break, we were kind of like figuring this out a little bit. And, um, you know, you made the comment that it leaves a lot out when you're thinking about the whole civil service. Yes, because the (laughs) whole world is actually not national security. And you can be important and not be national (laughs) security. Um, I think sometimes we like use this blanket term to mean everything because we think it's the only thing that's important. It's not. Um, But I would say that. There are certain components of the federal government um, and not federal government, right? So maybe in state and local as well that have national security, homeland security, and foreign policy um, components. And I would say that what we're talking about is the foreign policy workforce and not the national security workforce, because national security is part of foreign policy, and we have got to get back in that habit of saying the State Department sets our foreign policy, and there's a bunch of other people that help execute and support, but it is not the department, and as someone who loves DOD, and is DOD through and through, it is not the Department of Defense's mandate (laughs) to be in charge of foreign policy.
2: I would say um, one other group we can't forget. Um, to Maggie's point, they're they're not an agency, but they're just as important. Um, and that's our elected officials. So the hill, um, and they represent the people, right? So we can't have all three hundred and however million people. They're not part of the workforce, but we've elected these individuals um, who sit on committees, who then are supposed to be helping to regulate or monitor fund all these other agencies, right? So the pressure is also on them as well to see the imperative around diversity and national security, because it's not just up to DOD and it's not just up to state. We have this whole other mechanism um, that operates in the foreign policy apparatus that should also be held accountable.
3: Very interesting. And I think I've saw some data this week on uh, diversity in Capitol Hill especially for senior staff I think it's you know 16 percent or less of uh, senior congressional staffers represent uh, diverse peoples and and that has to manifest itself in in the policy process
4: it's bad I think what we're saying is it's bad right and you know I, I really want to hear what um, Miriam says but I one of the things that we say at that Girl Squad is like this is not a warm fuzzy this is not window dressing this is and you will for sure tell that I am DoD through and through like this is a readiness, lethality issue, right? Like, to be very blunt about it, um, there are certain thi- like, your people are your best weapon. Mm-hmm. They are your best everything. You are nothing without them. Um, and the United States has a unique population. Um, And we're gonna decide whether that's going to be an inherent advantage or something we let get in our way And I don't really like to lose very much, right? Like I'm a hyper competitive person Um, So what I've often said and it makes people uncomfortable But I think it's true is like if you are soft on diversity You are soft on defense We'll stop like you don't care about this. You don't care about America get out of my way and I mean that wholeheartedly
0: Yeah, I just, to echo what Maggie just said, you know, personnel is policy in the end, right? And so I think the more inclusive we can be, these challenges are complex. Um, We're dealing with, you know, uh, disinformation, Digital authoritarianism, the pandemic, and and more things that we probably have never even imagined. Just like I don't think we could have imagined a year ago that we would still be on Zoom, you know, just living our lives um, in this in this kind of uh, moment. So I think the more inclusive, the better. And I would also say, sort of on the conversation of what constitutes national security, uh, I think it you know Truman um, is an institution, and I think the department actually, I would say. Um, Is moving towards this more this broader definition of national security so that it's not only focused on um, Defense, it's also focused on, you know, human security I wrote a piece in my personal capacity uh, a week ago through with the Council on Foreign Relations on their blog on how FGM Female genital ending FGM female genital mutilation is a national security interest. It costs globally there's a 1.4 billion dollar price tag on the health related costs of this practice. So it's seen as a soft kind of far away over there issue. It also affects half a million girls right here in the United States that are either at risk or survivors, myself included actually. So I think it's important for us to um Reframe national security in a much broader way. And I think it's been really amazing to see recently this sort of stitching together of the domestic and the global um, You know secretary Blinken mentioned that the our foreign policy starts at home And I think it's so important now more than ever for us to look at our own uh, Institutions, you know if we're trying look at the capital, you know insurrection and what what message did that send to our our country but also to the world in terms of as we're trying to You know promote peaceful transfers to power and respecting and safeguarding dignity for all and equality for all I think it's important for us to kind of make sure we're harmonizing our domestic record with our global rhetoric
3: You know, it's one thing that that you all touched on that I wanted to pull the thread on a bit more as uh, Where the rubber meets the ground is the putting the president's team in place and and personnel as policy And I want to get your reactions or thoughts to Secretary Austin at the Defense Department, uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks, um, Ambassador Thomas Greenfeld, uh, DNI Haynes, some of the other leaders at the top. What does that mean uh, in our political system um, and for the signals that it sends uh, as we're moving through getting the, the new administration staffed up?
0: I mean, I think it's critically important to have leadership that's representative of all of America represented, right, at the senior ranks. There was a government, in the context of the State Department, there was a government accountability office report released early, around this time last year, actually. And the data was, you know, pretty, the racial disparities are stark. Um, I can speak anecdotally as a woman of color in the department. There aren't, I'm kind of one of the only, usually in a room. And I'm sure, you know, Maggie and Bumi have Felt this as well in their in their spaces, um, and so the data was kind of a to me uh, really a just dis- cast sunlight on the issue in a way that was really powerful because it shows how systemic it is um, that you know for example in 2002 there were only uh, only two percent of the foreign service um, was. Well, constituted black women. And that number only went up to 3% in 2018. So this predates the Trump administration. This idea that these racial disparities and these um, underrepresented groups left in response is not true. It actually goes back decades and it's kind of what our report digs into a bit. It's like these are deep-rooted and systemic. So I think we need more data transparency um, in promotions and assignments um, across the levels. Uh, exit surveys, for example, which I think we recently, the department started to institute, um, you can't mandate it, but but again, creating a culture of information gathering on data so that we understand, you know, why are people leaving? You know, who's leaving? Why? You know, um, what are some of these uh, barriers for um, Retention because you know, the secretary mentioned in his confirmation hearing that it's not just a pipe I was really grateful to see this like it's not just a pipeline issue. It's about retention and it's also about accountability and the data Diversity data is part of that in addition to the broader processes to ensure You know, there's zero tolerance for harassment sexual harassment racial harassment and even just bullying in general That's not related to a protected category
2: It's a great point Miriam. Um, I want to pull on her point about trust. Um, So we talked about how the current administration is trying to marry our domestic and our our foreign policy. Um, If you're someone sitting in Texas or someone sitting in Oklahoma or the South Bronx or Oakland or wherever, right? You're not thinking about foreign policy, to be honest, right? Um, But if you hear or you see a Linda Thomas-Greenfield just flash across your screen, right? You're going to want to know like, what's this about? Right. Just that little bit of curiosity creates a little bit of investigation, which then hopefully leads to trust, right? Like this president is talking about all of these things. Well, if you look at, if this person is looking at the media and sees, um, you know, Lloyd Austin and so on and so forth, it becomes more believable, even though if they don't understand the full impact of their roles or their agencies or what their jobs are, or what the policies are. Even if as a regular person, you don't even know like when an, like any of the acronyms, right? But if you see someone flash across your screen, it does something to the back of your mind and builds just a little bit more trust than before, right? Particularly when someone is saying, I wanna do these things, I wanna, you know, diversify X, Y, Z. But if you actually see it, um, it makes a big difference. So I think that's the, for me, the significance of what we're seeing with the Biden administration.
4: Yeah, and I would say, you know, in another hat that I wear is, um, I'm a member of Elsie Wins, which is the Le- Leadership Council of Women in National Security. I'm the uh, co-chair of the Initiatives Committee. And um, it's a nonprofit organization focused on really building and supporting senior women in national security. Um, and prior to the election, Um, the organization's founders reached out to everyone who at the time was running for president, so literally everyone who was running for president, and said, um, will you commit that if you are elected president, uh, you will nominate at minimum 50% of women um, for senior Senate confirmable national security roles?" And all candidates except one, um took that pledge and um both of the leaders of this administration of the biden harris administration made that pledge separately um and remain committed to it Um, i have the joyful job of tracking very closely how much of this they're doing and um all the you know bits and pieces and something that is um exciting you know and, and and There is a lot to unpack with Secretary Austin's confirmation, right? Because we're not just talking about um, a black man We're talking about a black man who became a four-star in the military, which is um, I'm gonna say an achievement which is not really the right word, but it's the one that's coming to me right now we're also dealing with um over the last several decades, frankly, an erosion of trust, as we've talked about in institutions, and what does this mean for civil norms? And like, that's a whole other thing, right? It's important, and we can't pretend it's not happening. It's happening. We acknowledge it. Um, but one of the things that that has been really interesting to me is looking at where are we putting women, right? And where are we not putting women? Um, and so historically, uh, the Western Hemisphere. Is An area of US foreign policy homeland security national security that we in my personal opinion um, We've really just not paid any attention to we just throw it by the wayside and Historically, it's a bunch of white men who are the ambassadors and the DASD's and the DAS's and There aren't senior women in those roles and so far there still aren't senior women in those roles (laughs) Um, so I think who the people we pick are or who the administration picks um, matters, where they are. And it's not just the numbers, right? You can, 50% is nice, but if it's a bunch of white women, what good does that do us? So the numbers matter, but they're only part of the story.
3: Thank you, Maggie. We're gonna have to pause and take our second break of the program here for a word from our sponsors. And then we're gonna come back into this discussion you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network.
1: Shaw, Bransford, and Roth.
0: One team working all three branches Judicial, Legislative, Executive. Judicial. SBR Employment Attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers.
1: Legislative.
0: Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients.
1: Executive.
0: Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent.
1: Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government.
0: Online at ShawBransford.com. SBNR, client focused, results driven.
3: Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering the second half of our show with Boomi, Maggie, and Miriam, and we're discussing diversity and national security. Before the break, we we're talking about some of the uh, slow progress, but critical progress we're seeing. With diversity at the top, particularly some of the cabinet leaders of the Biden-Harris administration as they work through the Senate process. But I want to make sure that we're also looking at the front end of the talent pipeline and making and, and thinking about the full picture here. Uh, and I want to open up this this segment talking about some of the barriers that each of you might see uh, within national security agencies that limit women and people of color from adva- advancing or maybe even from being hired uh, from the get-go.
2: Yeah, so I, I didn't say this in the beginning, but I'm not representing my day job. Uh, I'm not representing uh, Howard University or the Rangel program or Pickering. However, I will say with this question, um, the the two big barriers that I see for young people, um, it feels weird saying that because I feel like I'm young, but I'm not like, <laughs> wasn't born in like 98 <laughs> so uh, or 2001 for that matter. But anyway, so I digress. Um, So the first is, who do you know? Like, we know that the national security and foreign policy space just by itself is very insular. D.C. is even more so, right? And um, when I lived in Chicago and I was trying to break into, like, the the philanthropic space, one of the things a mentor told me was, like, you know, it's not just who you know, it's like who sent you. Who sent you, right? And that's a powerful thing to achieve if you're like a 21-year-old and you know nothing about the world. And so a barrier, I would say, is just like knowing who the levers of change are in the space, having access to those individuals. So whether it is a Maggie or a Miriam or any of the folks on our lists, or me, right, Uh, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, all of these individuals are extremely important and they are what I call the levers of change, right? They have the access to introduce you to individuals or to even just give you insight, like, look, hey, on your resume, you may not want to put that. Or when you go to these networking events, you may want to, you know, strategize about who, you know, the whole DC thing, right? It it feels superficial, but I think just giving that knowledge, passing that knowledge down is so important and um, leads to... I think, stronger relationships with those people who are sort of the gatekeepers or access points. And that, for me, has been super helpful just professionally. And it's something that I try to keep in mind when I'm working with younger young people. It's like, okay, who do I need to introduce them to if they're interested in, like, North Korea issues, right? Who's that person? you know, and I go through my mental Rolodex <laughs> and I try to make the connection, right? Um, so the second thing, and, and I think um, Maggie can speak to this, it was a personal barrier for me when I worked in the Obama administration. um, and that is getting through the clearance process. Like, it's a lot. If you're still on your parents' insurance, Um, you're still living at home. Maybe you don't do your own taxes. Maybe you don't know about, you know, auntie or uncle living in your house who may be undocumented. Like you don't know all of those things. Um, and so having all of these people in your business, um, is super scary. It's super, super scary. Um, and you may not even be guilty. You smoke weed one time last year, right? Like Like everybody does a bunch of different things. And to me, weed is just like, it's the bottom, but I digress. Anyway, so like, you know, I think that it's very intimidating. I think the clearance, even like the public trust, like just getting uh, comfortable with like literally giving your whole life story over and all your businesses, your the finances of your family, right? Those are sensitive matters. Um, And if you've never done that before, that can be a deterrent to um, even just like applying to the FBI or the wherever NSC or any NSA whatever right so those are the two things that I see as barriers for young people.
0: Yeah, and I think maybe backing off of Bumi, I mean the um, definitely the security clearance process and trying to demystify it, but also um, the the fact that you, most of the internships are unpaid uh, at the department. So you know, Representative Castro, one of the co-chairs of the Truman um, Centers task force report um has come up with uh, is looking at legislation that can kind of dismantle some of these structural barriers and i think one of them is um it's it's economic you know uh, i did both the peace corps and americorps and i think i did i was probably the only (laughs) i think i was one of five i know it was out of 50 in my peace corps class there were maybe five people of color and in americorps it was i was in seattle and it was um something similar to that. So I I noticed I was the only one, one of the onlys. And part of that is the economic, who can afford to live uh, for a year. And in AmeriCorps, minimum wage for the year. Um, And Peace Corps, it's it's very minimal. I think it's like $200 a month or something for for all our entire budget for the whole. Uh, So, I mean, it's, uh, how do you, you know there has to be more outreach, and I think for unpaid, which is zero, uh, housing in D.C. is expensive. So you know it's uh, it's a luxury for a lot of people, um, both you know in the in the state department, other sectors, in journalism. You'll see that too with freelancers, like who can afford to live? You know um, in Cairo, let's say, and, and so then you start to see the lack of representation trickle up because the pipeline um, is not diverse, right? And so yes, you have Pickering and Wrangle and these amazing programs, um, but again, without the the focus on uh, retention, you know, you can have as many pipelines as you want. And in the in the report, we really talk about that. That yes, we need we need to expand the pipeline and get more creative. Um, for example we call for an expansion of the Diplomat in Residence Program. So it's much broader, you know, put them, in, put people in all 50 states uh, so that one person isn't covering seven states, you know, there's a lot. And then you can really get to the granular and again, get to the racial and gender diversity, but also the geographic diversity. Somebody from Montana or Nebraska, it shouldn't only be feeder schools um, in DC and New York, um, it, and, and maybe Boston, it needs to be broader um, so that we can again, have a more diverse uh, pool, um, and uh, all related to our national security in terms of the more creative thought, the less group think, you know, because one issue too is you get the same ideas over and over, and if they don't work, <laughs> you want, you may want to try some new ideas, and you're not gonna get those new ideas if you have the same people at the table over and over again, or even coming back again, potentially as political, it's like you, you need to, kind of keep refreshing and refreshing. And so I think it's been great to see, you know, uh, networks like LC wins and in all the networks you're a part of and Truman as well. Um, in addition, I love this another uh, network called Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security started by um, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins who's just a powerhouse and talk about, I mean, now she's the undersecretary, she's T at the State Department, which is super exciting. Uh, But I think that network for me was so nourishing to be able to connect at this mid-career point where I'm not so junior, that I'm just starting out, but I'm also not senior, you know, like uh, Ambassador Jenkins or Ambassador, you know, Gina Abercrombie-Winstanley, who's another co-chair for our uh, report. Um, so, you know, it, it's a nice space, it's a safe space. So, my last point um, is on mentorship, and you know, but what, we what said it's navigating this system. Washington is its own creature, um, and also sponsorship. You know, I've been learning, um, Ambassador Gina Abercrombie-Winstanley, for example. a master at this you know so she doesn't just give you advice she'll follow up and say hey did you you know i i she recommended me for something and she followed up later saying how how did this go and i wouldn't have even thought to ask you know and she she actually made sure that i made it through the finish line for this for this particular thing and i realized oh wow i need to do that actually it's not enough for me to just give advice and be a sounding board you know i need to do Dig in and and do that so that if we want to get more people, um, that look like us, that are more representative of the of. diversity of the country, then we have to kind of, I think there's evidence and data that show the mentorship and sponsorship programs actually work. And it's not just about people of color mentoring other people of color. It's everyone who's in senior positions mentoring everyone, including people who don't look like them. I think that's really critical because sometimes that happens where, you know, there's matchmaking that's done based on like demographics. And it's, that's not that you don't need to do that, you know, and, and sadly, we just don't have that many people at the top anyway, that are representative. So it's important for everyone in these senior positions to really um lean into the mentorship piece and uh and be a resource for everyone
4: yeah and you know i first i agree with everything they both have said so everything i'm about to say is not counter but is and Um, and i say that uh be really like wearing what I call it like, the more narrow national security hat, right? So defense, I see, like, I will not pretend to talk about foreign policy in the State Department because it is just not what I do. Um, and I don't think that this is not imposter syndrome. This is me acknowledging what my limits are <laughs> and really important to do that. Um, and for sure to double snap on sponsorship and mentorship being separate things. And for sure, women, especially women of color are over-mentored and under-sponsored. Please sponsor us. We're great. Um, so I think we've hit on a couple of things, right? One is this very early pipeline piece, um, getting people in. And that has in part to do with what not only who you know, but what do you know? Did you know that these jobs were a thing? Right. Were you like, oh, that's something that I know about and am interested in doing. And that number two, like number one is hard, but number one is nothing compared to number two. Right. Um, And that matters. The other thing I would say is that the federal government is getting increasingly good at recruiting and increasingly terrible at retention. And not only are they getting really good at recruiting and really bad at retention, they're specifically getting really good at recruiting younger and younger and younger people. Because we think the way to solve this problem is to pre-professionalize the youth. (laughs) And as a very proud uh, liberal arts undergraduate, who in fact has a whole other master's degree in opera, let me tell you, we are whole ass people. and I don't know that that this should become about, well, did you know this is what you wanted to do in college? Because if you didn't know that this is what you wanted to do in college, have you missed the boat, right? And I and I say that partially as a point of personal privilege in, in running that Psych Girl Squad um, and seeing this incredible uh, cadre of, of people, mostly women. um, I, I spent a lot of time stressed out about people who graduated college around 2007, 2008, right? Because they came out, right? And for those that cannot see, Jason is raising his hand, um, right? Like you you came out of college uh, at a complicated economic time and you maybe couldn't go directly to grad school, which is the thing to do in the national security foreign policy space, right? So you got a job and it didn't really matter what the job was. You just were like, I need money. Thanks. Um, so you did that. And then if you were lucky, right, you managed to get in and pay for graduate school. And because you came out in 07, 08 slash you're a real ass person, um, which is a technical term you weren't gonna not work during graduate school, right? So you weren't going to then take an unpaid internship during graduate school. So PMF, et cetera, like all these things to get your clearance during grad school wasn't gonna happen. And then you come out and you've got this student loan debt and someone says, oh, you can come into federal government as a GS-9, do you know how much money a GS-9 is and how much student loan debt is? Let's just put on hold the cost of living in Washington, DC, right? And You're like, well, I've been out of school for 10 years and I actually know some stuff and I'm useful and I matter um, But you're telling me my experience doesn't so that's one whole thing um, and as Bumi uh, alluded to I have a really complicated love affair with the security clearance process um, the security clearance process is for sure the other thing that keeps me up at night, right because Not only are we talking about people generally who Historically have been marginalized and put in a position where having somebody who is an investigator for the federal government Come to your house and ask a bunch of questions about your life is like not a warm fuzzy Um, Let's just pretend that for some reason even though historically There's no evidence to indicate this is an okay thing. You're willing to take the plunge and apply anyways. The number of times that I have heard from recruiters and investigators uh, whose agencies or companies shall remain nameless at this time, that they know whether or not someone is cleared or how clearable they are based on the number of vowels in their name. Yeah, it's not great. That's the polite word. Um, So the security clearance process, and I say process meaning not just the experience for someone going in it and the people around them, but the cost and the length of time and the lack of transparency and communication. Um, Why the private sector hasn't you know really (laughs) for all of these defense contractors uh who are looking for greater efficiency who all realize that really one of the most significant barriers to entry in the field is security clearance process and that they have all this money uh and all this unfinished work why they have not all banded together i do not know and anyone who wants to band together um you are welcome to come talk to me, NatSec Girl Squad has developed a prototype um, that mill Twitter hates about how can we help people who are outside of this PMS, pale, mail, and sale, um, kind of get a preview of the security clearance process Not for no other reason except that they'll go into it with better education and better tools. So for example, we have a partnership with a, a women-founded, women-run company called Elvest. All of our members get six free months of financial planning and coaching. And we will go through your credit report with you. We meaning your financial planner and coach and you. I'm not going to look at it. We're not holding this data anywhere. But like what would uh, an investigator see when they looked at you, right? Because knowledge is power, friends. Um, And then we're also dealing, you know, before we even get to the retention piece, and I will stop talking before we do, Jason, so you can like ask something. Um, But the hiring processes we were talking about are deeply flawed. What do I mean by deeply flawed? Well, not to pick on the FBI, but they have really uh, relatively accessible data, so I'm going to. What is the most significant predictor of whether or not someone will receive a conditional offer to join the FBI as a special agent? It's their demographic information. What do I mean by that? No, I'm not saying like what kind of experience they have. I mean that if you are a black or brown man, especially if you're a black or brown man without previous federal law enforcement, law enforcement, or military experience, the likelihood of you passing the final interview on the first try is really low. And by really low, I mean less than 25%. And don't even get me started on the fact that the percentage of people who they go on to give an offer to who pass the final interview on the first try is less than 50 right so that means that more than half the people they end up hiring fail the first time and people are like well you have to go through it twice to prove you really want it no that's inefficient friends um so this is a a, a deeply flawed chaotic situation and if you are someone who cares a lot about america like all of us and really loves a good puzzle please come join us because we tired <laughs> I mean, that's the God's honest truth, right? I mean, we're exhausted and all of us did not get into national security for the diversity angle, right? Like we all have other expertise, other um, relevant knowledge, things that we could and should probably be doing, but we can't because we're not sleeping because this is all we think about and we're tired. So if this is something you're listening to in your car or in your house, because we're all stuck at home um, and you're like, huh, I'm really into puzzles or that irritates me. Come join us. There is room for everyone.
3: <laughs> Love it. Uh, thank you, Maggie. There are so much to unpack here. We have to stop to take our final break and we'll return for our discussion on diversity in the national security workforce. You're listening to FedTalk on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering our last segment of the program, so let's dive in. This will be a, a little bit of a lightning round here because uh, I want to hear from each of our guests. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground in this program today, uh, covering a lot of issues uh, affecting diversity in the national security workforce, but I want to end the show talking about culture, creating a culture of inclusivity within the national security workforce and within the federal government workforce. And uh, Miriam, can you just give us some thoughts from from your experience, from the work you're doing with the Truman Center? Uh, love to hear what you have to say about this.
0: So in terms of creating a culture of inclusivity, I think we have to dig deep and look at root causes for why there are issues around retention in particular. So the pipeline is important, but the retention, um, why are people leaving? So I think number one, we need to make sure we need to liberate the data. (laughs) As a friend of mine, he's an organizational psychologist. He was one of the authors of the report said, we need to make sure that we have the data and the transparency to really understand the problem. Uh, But it's not enough just to understand the problem. And then it's, you know, what do we actually do in a substantive way? And, you know, we really believe, um, you know, through the Truman Center, Uh, It was a cathartic process, actually, because a lot of there's a lot of pain on those pages that, you know, behind the scenes and we did it all in six weeks. So it was a tight time frame, but we were, you know, pouring into our, our own stories. And one of the pieces was accountability in terms of, you know, really zero tolerance for harassment and um, racial harassment, sexual harassment, um, you know, one of the co-chairs, Representative Castro, um, is a co-sponsor to the SHAPE Act, which is focused on accountability around sexual harassment and just strengthening these mechanisms. So that if something, you know, the culture needs to be, if you see something, Say something and you won't be retaliated against if you do and right now, it's you know There's the policy of course if you see something say something But there's the lived experience that if I see something ooh, maybe i'm gonna (laughs) Not say anything because of my career and so you end up having um an ecosystem. That's not not really Functioning for anyone really it's not even about uh, people of color or women or other groups, it's just making sure everyone's healthy, you know, mentally healthy, destigmatizing, accessing mental health, for example, is another part of the ecosystem. So I think it's really about building resilience, you know, not just at the individual, because a lot of times it's the individual level, like, oh, you know, this is how you can, and it's like, no, how can we also build that individual resilience, but in, in a broader ecosystem conversation? And then the last part I would say is any structural intervention, Needs to be grounded in evidence and data. Um, and so this means for example, you know There was evidence that came out that mandatory unconscious bias trainings actually are harmful according to organizational psychologists You know, they don't actually necessarily work. This is mandatory voluntary. could be different But it's just knowing okay. Where, do, where does what is the science? What does it say? Sometimes the science Feels kind of counterintuitive, but I think it's really important that again the data-driven, evidence-based interventions, um, and just an ecosystem of kindness and empathy and you know learning, because we're all trying to figure out how to manage this very difficult. Um, you know, as uh, uh, you know, as mentioned earlier, as the the puzzle. How are we going to solve this puzzle? So I think we all need all hands on deck.
3: Thanks, Miriam. Uh, Maggie, what are your thoughts?
4: Um, I really think it comes down to stop treating this like it's optional. It's not. That's all I have to say. That's it. Thank you, Maggie. Boomy. Last word.
2: Uh, let's see here. So both of those things that Mary, Miriam and um, Maggie have said, those things require, as I said, courage, um, and a level of. Uh, You got to dig deep as we used to say in the athletic world when you don't want to do something That's probably the thing you should be doing. So I'll just say that as an aside um, but in practical sense, I have to um, promote uh, the Diversity National Security Network. Um, and so if you're looking for outstanding talent, if you're looking for ideas, you should pay us. But nonetheless, you should look at the Diversity National Security Network website, which is DiversityNationalSecurityNetwork.com, Um, And there we have our lists. Um, and if you don't see anybody who... Um, fits whatever job you've got or opportunity or contract or whatever, you know, you can email us um, and we're happy to be a resource for you uh, in the way that we can. And then also my podcast, What in the World Podcast, which is at whatintheworldpodcast.com and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, If you're just looking to have a fun conversation, um, you know, and break free from the, the, the insular way we talk about these issues, um, you can listen to the podcast and I think that you know having a little bit of fun is okay like in good taste um, and cracking a joke and laughing is okay in good ta- taste and, and having a drink with people you wouldn't normally socially distance and it is good right um, and so any I think you know while these are very serious topics I think that there's a little room for for just a little bit of fun right and a little bit of um, just levity. These are these are heavy, heavy, heavy issues. Um, and like I said, if you care about it, it it can keep you up at night. Uh, and so that's that's what I'll say. Um, reach out to us at diversity and security, uh, <laughs> diversity and national security network.com, what in the world podcast.com, and certainly all the great work that uh, Maggie is doing. And I'm looking forward to the report, Miriam. I think that it's gonna be phenomenal for folks in the in the space.
3: Well, once again, thank you so much, Boomy, Maggie. Miriam, for joining us. Check out their organizations Diversity and National Security Network, the NADSEC Girl Squad, and the Truman Center for National Policy. This has been Fed Talk. Have a great weekend.